Oh, it was 51 years ago. We celebrated the inaugural Earth Day. That was April 22nd, 1970. An estimated 20 million folks participated back in 1970, and the observance has since become a global phenomenon. MSU today is observing and celebrating Earth Day 2021 with a conversation with two highly regarded experts in environmental policy and environmental law. James Cliff is the deputy director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. And before that, he served as policy director for the Michigan Environmental Council. And uh, our other guest, Solis Michelonis, is a widely respected environmental attorney in the Bloomfield Hills office of Plunkett Cooney. Uh, let's start, uh, Solis, let's begin with you. Uh, same question to James as well. Uh, some of your thoughts on the significance and the impact of Earth Day over all these 51 years and uh, maybe a favorite story or two that you could share uh, from some of your Earth Day adventures. My first boss in DC when I graduated from Michigan was um, Dennis Hayes, who was, who, at that, who was one of the founders of Earth Day. He came from the anti-war movement and they took all those same techniques and moved it over to environmental uh, work. And so um, the interesting thing about that was he was my boss at Solar Lobby. Uh, he, he started the Solar Lobby Center for Renewable Resources, which was the uh, lobbying and industry group for renewable energy back in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting in his office and, and talking about, you know, his background and his history and, and things like that. Um, very interesting, very accomplished man. And, and I, don't think, I don't think he envisioned how big this would be. Uh, 50 years later. I don't think anybody did. Um, but yeah, that was a, that's one thing I can take away from. Yeah. And what about the impact and significance? Well, the impact and, and significance is that, you know, it, it started the ball rolling. I mean, shortly thereafter, EPA was created, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. Um, you know, there were all, there were environmental statutes that were in the books before that, but they were very mild and, and not very well enforced. Um, that, got the ball rolling with all the people. And it became, you know, environmental issues were always things that people were concerned about, but it didn't become um, actionable until they had a, a critical mass of people to work on it and the legislation passed. And, and I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from Earth Day. It, it got the ball rolling. Uh, James, I was a senior at Albion College on that first Earth Day, and there was a big observance down in Albion because one of the profs was hooked into Gaylord Nelson back then. I'll never forget that. But how about your experiences with Earth Day and the significance thereof? I like Earth Day in that it helps trigger people's memory. How long have we been at this? You know, 50 years since the first one, and maybe... You know, once you went to college, the first time you went to a celebration and now you're, you're marking it as, oh, there's 30 years since I was at that particular event. And I think it's good for people to think about how much progress have we made over time or areas where maybe there's been a little bit of a lack of progress. But if if you don't have a kind of a, an end data, a mark to kind of put in the sand, it's sometimes hard to kind of conceptualize the time that is passing. I've worked under, I think it's five different governors now, you know, since I got, came to the state capitol. And, and I think about the different flavor of the events that I've seen on the capitol lawn, you know, celebrating Earth Day over the years. But again, it's always a good time to see people kind of come together for that common cause. Uh, any special memory that you have of uh, a particular Earth Day, James? 
to me, it's, you know, there's just, you know, part of it sometimes it's like, who is there? The, the group of, you know, activists I was working with at the time, some of my early years at the Michigan Environmental Council, I, I particularly remember, and that it just seemed like it was just really good energy we had going. And some of the initiatives, initiatives we undertook at that time, I think were really kind of positive and kind of rebuilding a movement maybe that that had kind of, you know, it was you know, maybe that's at the midpoint of that 50 years and just to see it kind of reinvigorated in different generations. Same question for uh, both of you here. The Biden administration is moving quickly, as you know, on a number of fronts, many of which have major implications for sustainability across the board. The 1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, the 2 trillion infrastructure plan that's under discussion, the Biden budget, uh, James, from your perspective, uh, what are some of the key implications for the environment uh, that you see in the early stages of the Biden administration? I think this infrastructure package is key. And I think it really kind of interesting how it overlaps Earth Day in a way, where you think about that we really kind of built today's water infrastructure, was kind of built in the 60s and 70s through some of the grant programs that were developed at that time. Well, that infrastructure is now 50 years old and is in much need of help. So, and, and that, that old aging infrastructure is having public health impacts in communities across the state. So it's really, in my mind, kind of a great tribute, you know, to kind of Earth Day in the country to say, okay, now it's time to collectively readdress this infrastructure question that we've been ignoring in large part and kind of help got to get the economy rolling again in a way that's going to improve public health, especially in a lot of the cities across the nation. Uh, Solace, what are your thoughts in terms of the direction of the Biden administration and the implications for sustainability? Well, the, the first thing that I, I noticed was that um, the Biden administration tried to, right off the bat, tried to like turn the clock back a little bit on the four years preceding his uh, inauguration. <laughs> And, and I think infrastructure is huge because I, it, if, you, if you think about, you know, the New Deal under Roosevelt, there's a reason Biden has a bust of Roosevelt in his office, right? The infrastructure goes, you know, I, I know that, you know, waterworks and things like that, 60s. But I mean, think about the water delivery system in cities like Flint and, and elsewhere in the country. Um, you know, those things are well beyond um, their normal lives. And I think the infrastructure bill will address that. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're, you're improving people's lives immediately. You're providing jobs, you're, you're improving uh, water quality. Um, there's so many, so many things that we've kicked, we've kicked the can down the road so long and, and it's about time we, we start paying. I mean, two trillion seems like a lot of money. Um, it's probably a drop in the bucket if you consider all the delayed efforts and, and things like that that we should have been doing all along and we didn't do. Um, so this is just the, the first step. That's, that's the way I look at it. You mentioned the Roosevelt administration. It seems like in the past when America has been bold in terms of infrastructure, I think of rural electrification, uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, for example, uh, the highway system, nobody really thinks back on those things and, and, you know, and remembers the arguments about how much money they were going to cost. People were just happy that uh, we had the foresight to do them. Right. And well, I mean, and infra I heard a comment last week. I mean, it, they didn't consider those things, quote unquote, infrastructure until they were built and people started using them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we have these things in place, you know, even, even things like um, broadband in, in, in rural areas, 
I mean, there are whole parts of this country that are behind through no fault of their own. And we have the money and the wherewithal to improve people's lives in, in a number of ways. And, and this, the way I look at it, it seems like a, a pretty logical thing to do. Uh, James Clift, uh, as you know, as we all know, uh, Michigan's former governor, and you mentioned you've served under several governors, but Jennifer Granholm is the new Secretary of Energy. And I remember talking to her, and Russ will remember this as well, uh, it was one of her last interviews that she did before leaving office, but she said that she considered her initiatives regarding renewable energy as among the most important legacies of her two terms as governor. It seems like uh, Whitmer uh, is continuing that, uh, uh, that legacy. Uh, your thoughts on, on where we are with renewable energy and how does the Whitmer administration compare to maybe Granholm, Snyder, and uh, even the Biden administrations in that regard? Again, I think it's important in the similarities if you look at when Granholm coming into office in 2008 and the recession that we were in at that time, the investment that was made in renewable energy over the next four or five years, billions of dollars was kind of spent building that first wave of renewable energy resources across Michigan. You know, I, I sometimes think about how bad the economy would have been if we wouldn't have implemented that clean energy standard right in 2008 and kind of created those jobs. And again, there was a learning curve because there always is where the cost was a little higher to begin with, but we saw the cost of wind energy drop from 11 cents a kilowatt hour down to about five cents a kilowatt hour in a very short period of time. So again, we, we learned how to do it. Now we're kind of continuing to see that build out of wind, but also now we're seeing, you know, utility scale solar across the state of Michigan really starting to replace those fossil fuel resources and address the, you know, the major challenge of climate change going forward. So again, that, that superimposing that, that recession and need for that economic development with that investment in kind of you know, Michigan-made energy to, that was going to provide us you know, services for decades to come. On top of that, I think that she, Governor Whitmer is also recognizing that you need to go kind of beyond that renewable energy. And I think that's why she has tasked us with looking and creating the, the Michigan Healthy Climate Plan and realizing that it, you're gonna have to get beyond just the way you produce energy, but to start to look at those energy intensive industries, what's gonna take them to reduce their carbon impact. You know, looking at the future of vehicles that we know is critical to Michigan. Again, the similarities is in that looking forward and seeing what Michigan is gonna, what's, power, what's gonna power Michigan in the future, I think. I'm having an Earth Day conversation with James Clift, who's Deputy Director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, and Solis Michelonis, uh, who's an environmental attorney with Plunkett Cooney out of the Bloomfield Hills office. Uh, Solis, your thoughts, too, on renewable energy and, uh, you know, as you well know, consumers and uh, DTE Energy uh, have made commitments to renewable and retirement of coal fire. Are we moving fast enough? And... Uh, Probably good news for a uh, fast moving uh, pace on renewable energies with uh, Granholm in the, uh, in the cabinet. So the government incentives, the ways to, to get this 
um, process moving. Remember, I go back to solar lobby days back in the 80s, right? Um, and, and one of the reasons I, I didn't stay in that industry is because right after Ronald Reagan was elected, after he fired all the air traffic controllers, he essentially gutted um, renewable energy. So, you know, put us back probably 15, 20 years. And, you know, the government's role is to take a long view, right? Corporations look quarter to quarter. The government's supposed to take a long view. And so they make certain investments and things like that with that in mind. But that essentially what that does is it primes the pump and sets things in place where industry can come in. Now it's interesting. So today I read an article from Axios on my computer right now that private equity, renewable energy investments in the United States in 2020 was $23.7 billion. This is private money. This is not federal money. This is not state money. These are private dollars going into renewable energy. There was another article that came out today. I think it's Chevron has now put a huge stake in offshore wind, invested a ton of money on offshore wind. So, you know, when you look at, you know, you know what is, what, what's Granholm going to do as, as DOE director, uh, administrator, or, or, you know, what are we going to do in Michigan? Those are really important. But the true sign is, is what is industry doing, right? Auto industry, you know, kicking and dragging, all of a sudden they're all in on EVs, right? Electric vehicles and stuff like that. So, so this is all part and parcel of, of many moving parts. And we can't really just focus on one. Um, and it's very heartening to see, you know, industry realizing, you know, this is not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's because it's profitable to do it. <laughs> and, that's, and that's probably the true sign. And, and something, you know, when I was back in the 80s, we were arguing, this will be profitable. And so that's where we are. Yeah, uh, I, I was thinking about that in the email that we exchanged. I remember talking to someone years ago uh, with the World Wildlife Fund talking about, in this particular case, it was uh, sustaining certain species and uh, leadership for climate change and what have you. And 10 years ago, they were saying that the leadership even then was coming from some of the major corporations across the globe. And that's where it has to go, even though government incentives are certainly important. Yeah, and I think, I think part of that also is, you know, the up and coming, the, the, the people that are coming up, the generation, you know, the, the, the millennials and, and people following them, they're very in tune in this stuff. And those are future employees, consumers, and things like that, they want to make those people happy. And maybe this is kind of macabre, but the people who don't believe that are starting sunsetting in a way. Uh, James, uh, from your perspective, uh, with Eagle uh, downtown, I mean, you're probably interacting with uh, folks uh, in Michigan, uh, corporations, and maybe beyond Michigan all the time. Uh, would you concur with what Solace has said about the private sector? I, I do. But again, I liked what he said about, you know, the role of the private sector and the role of the public sector and government. I think this uh, looking at electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and mobility is a good example of that. You know, switching from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles is going to be a significant transition for the auto industry. Um, and you got to plan for that. You got to be out ahead of that and really think about, you know, what are those skills that are going to be needed in the future for auto workers? You know, what's going to happen to the supply chain? You know, how is that supply chain going to change? Where's that manufacturing going to happen? Who's going to make those batteries? Um, so if you're not thinking about all those things, you know, 15 years in advance, you're going to kind of suffer some transition pains that could have been avoided if you planned it right. 
So I think that's where Governor Whitmer is really kind of sharp and looking at that. Are we making sure that the transition is going to be just, making sure that labor, we're going to think about this and think about who we're going to need to retrain, think about it through that equity lens, you know, where, where is it going to impact certain communities within the state? You know, making sure that when we kind of address something like climate, we're doing it in a way that's thinking about its impact on all of the residents of Michigan and making sure this is kind of an inclusive process moving forward. A little earlier, uh, we talked a bit about the Flint water crisis. Uh, let's turn to water in, in more general terms. I remember Charles Fishman, uh, who wrote The Big Thirst several years ago, in an interview said that back then that water is the new gold and there are so many water related issues we can talk about. Some are hopeful, some are very troubling and disturbing. James, we'll stay with you on that. Water related initiatives in Michigan, uh, I guess the good, the bad and the ugly. The good is that Lake Michigan is 11 inches lower than it was last year. <laughs> um, we, you know, we're just coming off of, you know, the five wettest years in our history. And it was clearly causing some challenges around the shores and with systems throughout the state. So we were, we were pretty happy with the mild winter and uh, the drier spring up till now. Um, it's uh, making this much more manageable. But long term, you know, we realize, you know, we got to look at that climate change and how it's impacting the lakes. You know, the fact that our, is our water infrastructure ready for kind of more variability, you know, larger storm events, you know, can we handle those storms? That's when we see a lot of the, the nutrient pollution runoff from farms is occurring during those larger storm events leading to, you know, the algae blooms that we're seeing in Lake Erie and in some of the inland lakes. So, you know, from a, you know, getting ready for a resiliency standpoint, there's a lots of investments we need to make in that kind of stormwater infrastructure system to make sure that we kind of handle that variability in the future. And, you know, that's on the kind of the larger scale, you know, on the, on the, we've already mentioned a little bit before on the drinking water side, we're not only dealing with kind of rebuilding those aging system, but we're also dealing with kind of some of these emergent contaminants, uh, things like PFAS, where the Whitmer administration has kind of led the country in setting, you know, drinking water standards for PFAS. And we're now kind of applying those to kind of groundwater sources and, and making sure that we're kind of protecting the public and looking forward again and trying to figure out, okay, what might be that next issue that we got to keep our eye on and making sure that we're addressing it as early as possible. Uh, Solace, uh, again, on the good side, uh, we've come a ways in terms of water quality, I think it's fair to say, since uh, the Cuyahoga River ignited uh, back in the, I think in the 70s, in the early 70s. But we've talked about Flint water, uh, talked about uh, the problems with PFAS. What are some of your thoughts on water related and, and maybe throw in line five while we're talking about this? So earlier we were talking about, you know, it's a good idea to set goals, right? That, you know, part of the the, the impetus after, after Earth Day was, you know, it's, it's important to set goals. Well, one goal that, that it should keep in mind is when they passed the Clean Water Act, the goal was by 1985, the waters were supposed to be swimmable, fishable, and drinkable. Um, guess what didn't happen? So, so it could be aspirational, but again, it's, you know, we've got a long way to go. Um, it, it, we're not there yet, obviously. 
you know, line five is a very interesting thing that I, I today the Canadian prime minister. Yeah. Um, anyway, he he was uh, he 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 basically told the the Biden administration that the existence of nine line five is non-negotiable with respect to Canada vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So that's going to put a lot of pressure on Michigan. Um, I know that there is an alternative plan to um, bury it beneath the bedrock, is that right? I, I'm Something like that, yeah. As opposed to having it sit on the bottom of a lake. Um, between the two, I would much prefer it buried beneath the bedrock. <laughs> the fact that it's sitting on the bottom of the lake is, is scary to me and anybody who values the lakes. Um, but that's something that it's gonna be needed to be addressed and it's gonna be addressed on an international level, right? And Michigan's you know, had, had its own issues with the owner and operator of that particular line um, with respect to the Kalamazoo River. There's going to be a lot of necessity for for everybody to come forward and really put together a plan that that addresses it. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I would guess that that it probably in the long run that that line will be buried. It will remain, at least for the short term. Um, and when I say short term, probably next 25 years or so. But it's I, I can't see it sitting on the bottom of that lake for very much longer. In terms of of you know water quality, water quality. You know, there's so many new contaminants, emerging contaminants. Um, and, and contaminants people aren't even thinking about. Um, there was an article that I read today, I read a lot. Um, they were talking about um, the effect of all the people taking antidepressants because of being locked in their homes and the effect on the biology of the lakes because that stuff's not filtered when it goes through the treatment system. There's a lot of stuff that isn't filtered when it goes through the treatment system. So you got a bunch of fish um, sucking down Xanax and, and what else? And, and so that's another issue that's going to be coming up in the future. I don't know the answer or how to address it, but there's, it's like, it, there's such a mix of chemicals and people just don't know how, how they interact and how they affect them and us. Um, we're talking about PFAS. PFAS is a very durable chemical. I, I know what, the, I think the, what, what's the level? Seven parts per trillion is the level that Michigan has set. Uh, or one of the chemicals. Yeah. Um, I would be shocked if we in our blood system right now don't have seven parts per trillion of PFAS in us, considering how ubiquitous this stuff is. It's in everything. And it's been around since the, what, early, late 50s, I think is when 3M developed it. And, and it's everywhere. And, I, and I'm dealing with it with a number of clients on a regular basis. Um, that is going to be a huge issue because it's not easily treatable. It moves through the water very quickly. And I don't think we have a full grasp on what the negative effects of that stuff is. Uh, James, I want to come back to you a bit on line five. Uh, I just recently read the plan that the governor released uh, as an alternative to the Enbridge plan. And I've long been opposed to that pipeline in the Straits, obviously, for any number of reasons. But it seems to me, frankly, that what Enbridge has proposed with that concrete encasement right now may be every bit as viable as what I saw thus far in the governor's plan, which frankly I thought was in many ways rather vague in terms of specific alternatives on how you get that energy to the people in the Upper Peninsula or Canada as an alternative. Let me try to dice it out a little bit. I'm, uh, the, because of, of course, litigation, I'm only free to speak to so much, but uh, you know, obviously Eagle has issued permits to Enbridge for the tunnel project. And, and so that's kind of one step. And again, the governor is really focused. The governor, like Saul said, wants the pipeline out of the water. 
that that is the number one risk. That is her number one motivating factor on everything. How do we get that pipeline out as quickly as possible? When you, you kind of get into the second question of saying, well, if we are to stop using it, what, what's the alternative? How else would we get the various energy in the short term? And we think in the UP Energy Task Force and other things have worked toward this issue of, you know, that this line could get disrupted at any point either by the courts or if the line feeding line five was to be disrupted or if line five was to break, like the line going into Kalamazoo, you know, Michigan would have to figure out where it was going to get its energy. So we think it's good, it's good planning on the state to think about what, what is plan B in case that line does get disrupted? Where would the protein come from, where would the other petroleum products come from and get to the various kind of end users. So that's the purpose of that plan is to make sure that kind of those other routes are kind of fully explored. If you go back to 2013, 2014, you might remember we had a kind of a major kind of disruption in propane. And it was really kind of Factor after factor, we had a very wet fall, so a lot of propane was used for drying crops. We then had a disruption in, in the fractionator and the pipeline, one of the pipelines uh, feeding line five there. Um, there was also kind of some rail strike going on at the time. So these factors kind of on top of each other caused uh, you know, a significant spike in the price of propane. I think it went over $5 a gallon. So the key is, is trying to make sure that kind of these other systems that you might be required to rely on at some point are robust as possible to avoid any kind of disruption or any price spike that could occur, regardless of whether or not the disruption occurred due to a kind of a, a legal kind of filing, or if it was an unplanned kind of disruption in the pipeline infrastructure. And again, then lastly, really importantly, I think, let's address kind of the underlying problem here which is the addiction of fossil fuels that this country is on and try to reduce that need for fossil fuels and you know, the, the climate impacts of those and making sure that we reduce our need for anything kind of long-term. My guests are James Cliff, Deputy Director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, and Solace Michelonis, an environmental attorney with the Bloomfield Hills Office of Plunkett Cooney. Uh, Solace, uh, a question that I suppose is kind of a tough one to answer because we're right in the middle of it. And, and James, I'm going to ask you the same one, but everybody's asking about the consequences of COVID on one thing or another. What are some of the environmental consequences of COVID? You know, I charge extra for really hard questions. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so COVID affects everything, right? Um, it's affected our daily lives. You know, there, there are pictures of India being able to see the, what, the Himalayas for the first time in, in like decades. But, you know, I've seen a recent maps in China where, you know, the clear skies in, in a time lapse, they had clear skies and then all of a sudden, boom, it's, it's back to normal, right? So, you know, there'll be short-term benefits. I mean, in terms of, you know, reduced carbon emissions and things like that, but that's, that's all very, very temporary. I think though long-term, I think what we'll see is that there will be, and this is tangentially related to environmental issues, but people like today, me, you, working from home, I think that'll become more and more common where instead of going to the office five days a week, we're gonna be in the office maybe twice a week. And if you cut travel by half, 
What is that going to do to air emissions and, and things like that? Also, if you're not driving, you know, 500 miles a week in your car, well, maybe the next car you buy will be an EV as opposed to something that, that you know, with a gas tank and things like that. So I don't think we have any idea. I think, I think maybe five years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, oh, okay, this was because of this, this was because of this. I can't see the future. I, I do know that when things like this happen, um, there are permanent changes. And I think you only realize them when you look back in retrospect. So I think there'll be benefits. I, I just hope everybody gets through this safely. You know, this has caused a lot of people a lot of pain. And hopefully there, there, there is some silver lining in this very, very dark cloud. James? <laughs> it, is, it is the hard question. I mean, I think one of the things to think about is really kind of, especially looking back for the last four years, you know, where, where science fit in to, you know, solving problems. And obviously this is one where we're forced to rely on science and in, in a very kind of fresh science type of way. We, are, we, are, we have to make decisions based on best available information. And I think the governor and governors across the state, across the country, have made some really kind of tough choices based on kind of the understanding at that, at that time. I think we'll hopefully not forget this pandemic quite as quickly so that to the extent that similar things arise in the future, we'll be a little bit more prepared. Um, I think it has highlighted our disinvestment in local public health um, in, a, in a significant way. And why, why you build up that infrastructure is to get you through times like this. And there had been a significant kind of disinvestment in, in that area. I think when you look at kind of the impact on the environment, Saul, I think, has pointed at the, the biggest one, I think, that will move forward, which is, I think, the way we do business in this country has, you know, been changed forever. You know, I formerly worked in a building with a thousand other people. Um, just kind of getting back to that setting is kind of hard for you to imagine at the moment. But I do believe that the number of people telecommuting, you know, on a more regular basis is, is definitely going to go up and that that will have kind of carbon impacts. But it will change the way we do business. It will change. It's changing the way we do video conferencing, you know, kind of daily as these tools kind of get more developed and kind of tailored to specific needs. So it will be interesting to, to watch in that regard. The other part of the science that I think has been fascinating is uh, we've been doing a fair amount of work in, in studying kind of wastewater. And by testing wastewater, can we tell where like the next COVID outbreak is going to be? You know, and I think that's going to have a lot of applications in different areas over time where we can look at, you know, what are those precursors to these uh, kind of disease vectors happening um, and making sure that we're kind of staying in front of them to the extent possible. Uh, gentlemen, since uh, this is a, uh, a conversation that's celebrating the 51st anniversary of Earth Day, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to talk a little bit about directional truth in terms of the environment and environmental issues. Sometimes uh, I read Bill McKibben and others who think that maybe uh, we're past the point of no return on certain things, carbon dioxide and what have you. You two have pointed to a lot of hopeful things uh, coming, particularly coming out of the uh, previous four years uh, in Washington of an administration, which uh, I, I guess I won't characterize here. But 
how about some thoughts for our listeners in terms of directional truth and, and maybe some positive messages as we look forward in general terms about the environment and social and economic sustainability? James? I think it's interesting, and I've been at this for, you know, again, not 50 years, but, you know, 30 plus. And in a way, you look at kind of the progression of, you know, you had the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, where we made very significant progress, you know, in relatively short periods of time. The air is much cleaner than it was. The water is cleaner than it was. Over time, we have built a deeper understanding. And now we're dealing with environmental issues that are that are tougher in a way. Uh, when you look at trying to address non-point kind of pollution issues with the water, they, they tend to be a little harder to tackle. We're also looking at more dimensions of every single problem we're looking at. You know, we're looking at, you know, what's the environmental justice impact? You know, what's going to be the labor impact? What's going to be, you know, the, the just transition that's going to get us through this? I think that's a very positive thing. We're looking at problems much more holistically, and hopefully that will lead to more holistic answers to them moving forward. And, you know, there's, there's kind of outside pressures. Climate is a, is a good motivator here. I think, you know, people are seeing kind of the erratic weather across the countries, the fires out west. And you're seeing, a, I think, a, a commitment in this area. Um, and really watching the private sector step forward in this area. I mean, Saul mentioned that they kind of run quarter to quarter. But there's a lot of these companies that have been around for a while. And they're thinking to themselves, Hey, if we don't change our business practice, you know, all of a sudden we're only going to be around for another decade or two, and then we might be kind of history. So they're joining in and trying to solve these problems. Um, and I'm hoping that that will change the dynamic in a way that I think can provide people a little bit of hope that, that maybe we can address some of these very challenging problems that we have in front of us. And Solace, uh, you have the last word, same question, uh, directional truth, where are we headed? Probably the, the thing that I find most hopeful is the buy-in from um, corporate America in environmental. I mean, in not just environmental. I mean, just look what happened in the last week with respect to uh, major companies in Michigan and elsewhere with respect to right to vote, right? Um, these guys have come out. Um, all of a sudden, before it was, you know, you, you read this stuff, you, everybody's heard the term greenwashing, right? I mean, are you, are you just saying this because that's what you think your customers and the people you want to work with for want to hear? Well, I mean, there's a generational change coming. You know, the boomers are, are, are exiting stage right, but the, the people that are coming up from behind are, are different. You know, obviously they're not all the same. Nobody, there's no generation that moves in lockstep, but it, it is a, a different um, way of thinking for a lot of these people. And, and I think a lot of these companies, the ones that will last, realize that their, their future employees and their, their future customers have certain expectations that they had better meet. And if they don't, they may be the dinosaurs. Um, they'll, be state, they'll be exiting stage right with, with us boomers. I'm technically a boomer, I guess. So anyway, that, that's, that's sort of my hopeful thing. I mean, I, I, see, I see good things. I mean, and again, I'm not, I'm not Pollyannish. I mean, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff that could happen and that's coming on down the line. And all we can do is control what we can control and, and support what we can support. So, but generally speaking, I think the last, I think since, since January 8th, um, I have seen a, some positive movement on, on a variety of levels. 
Well, and on that great note, uh, we've been talking uh, a little bit about uh, environmental issues, uh, broadly written with James Clift, Deputy Director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, and Solis Michelonis, Environmental Attorney with the Bloomfield Hills Office of Plunkett Cooney. It's been a while between conversations, gentlemen, but uh, thank you so much for joining MSU today and uh, be safe, stay well.